Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. I want us to experience miracles in our lives, but I also understand that some of you may be skeptical. And I want you to know that I'm, I'm a skeptic too. I really am. When I hear or read of something miraculous happening, I immediately want to discredit that. And I really have to research it, and, and I want it to be proven to me that, that something happened. I'm not saying I'm right in doing that. I'm just saying I, I know where you're at if you are skeptical of, of the miraculous. And when it comes to the miraculous, there's, there's honestly, there's only two types of people. There's those who believe in miracles, and there's those who don't. That's it. I mean, you either believe in miracles or you don't. And you might say that you believe that miracles occurred in biblical times, but that they just don't happen anymore. And I just want you to know that that is a very convenient statement for, for those of us that may be a little skeptic, you know, um, or skeptical. Uh, it, it's, it's very convenient, but it's also a very faithless statement to make. It suggests that somehow the laws of the universe have changed to prevent God. That in biblical times, the laws of the universe were different than they are now. So either they prevent God or that God has somehow changed in how he operates and how he deals with humanity. And the belief that miracles were possible at one time, but that they cease today, it is really, and honestly, it's a middle of the road. It's a lukewarm statement that allows us to fit in in both the secular and the religious viewpoints of our society. And, and it's, it's, it, it's riding the fence, to say that God did it then, but God doesn't do it now. And for those of you who do not believe in miracles, it's simply because you put your faith and your trust in the natural. But for those of us who do believe in miracles, it's because we put our faith and trust in the supernatural. You know that the belief in a deity is not natural, right? It's not natural. As a matter of fact, it's becoming a whole lot more unnatural to believe in a deity, to believe in a God that created the universe, a God that, that overlooks the affairs of humanity. It is, it is so unnatural for that. The belief in a God is simply not natural. It's supernatural because God is beyond nature. God is supernatural. And so if you do not believe in miracles, you have to ask yourself, do I believe in God? And I'll be honest with you. When I am skeptical, this is the question I have to ask myself. Do I actually believe in God? Because if God can't do whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm being told about, if God can't do that, then do I, do I believe in God? Because it takes supernatural faith to believe in a supernatural God. Many people believe that science is somehow at odds with faith. And that could be no farther from the truth. I'll submit to you that the miraculous can't occur without the existence of science. Science is what creates an understanding of the explicable. Uh, but, but miracles occur when something happens that breaks the laws of science and breaks the laws of understanding. That is when a miracle transpires, when you simply cannot explain it any longer. Albert Einstein once said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. You see, faith needs science, just as science needs faith. Isn't it funny that a miracle... A miracle is either nonsense or coincidence until it happens to you. That's what I found in my own life. 
that when I am skeptical, that it's nonsense or it's coincidence until it happens to me, until it's your miracle, doesn't make sense at all, does it? Before we can explore the topic of miracles, first of all, we have to define what is and what is not a miracle. You see, God has put certain spiritual laws in place that when they are lived out, you don't need a miracle. You simply live in the blessing. Now, I knew that they were going to be singing that song today, Miracles. We, we worked all that out. I had no idea that they were going to be singing the other song before that, the song that Alexis was leading, because that song, it lines up so perfectly with this, this little point that I'm sharing with you right now, that God is a God of blessing and God is a God of miracles. And we sang about both. We sang the theology of both of those, the, the, those parts today. There's moments when God is just simply a God of blessing. And blessing and miracle are not always the same thing. And God has put spiritual laws in place that when you walk those out, you don't need a miracle. You're just walking in his blessing. Like the law of gravity, spiritual laws, they are very dependable and they are certain. The law of gravity does what it does every day, all day with no exceptions. That's how gravity works. It's, it's like when my toast pops up out of the toaster. Because of the law of gravity and the faithfulness of the law of gravity, when that toast pops up out of that toaster, it just doesn't keep floating up, you know, to where I'm having to chase it down. It, it doesn't happen like that. When I go and wash my hands under the faucet, when I wash my hands, I, gravity says that that water has to go down towards that drain. Otherwise, when I would turn the water on, just, just, just bubbles of water would just float away and I'm going to have a hard time washing my hands and that, you know. But, but, but the law of gravity is very certain. You can depend on the law of gravity. That's how it works. And once God put certain spiritual laws in place, they worked. They always work. And they will always work. Spiritual laws that God has put in place, they do not change. And once God puts certain laws there, you can bank on them. You can count on those laws. And one of those laws is the law of sowing and reaping. Now, I'm not preaching on giving today, but I want you to understand the difference between living in the blessing and living in the miracle. One of those laws is the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6 and 7 says, for, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Within this law, there are three truths. The first one is this, you reap what you sow. You cannot sow a sunflower seed and expect to get a rose. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. Every farmer knows that. When you plant that, that tree, that bush, that, that it's always going to give you more fruit than just that, that one kernel or that one seed that you put into the ground. And, and so you reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you will always reap later than you sow. It's always later. I, I see this played out in lives all the time. I, I see this played out in, 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 in certain lives where they say, well, nobody is accepting, nobody welcomes me. When the Bible clearly says, if you want friends, show yourself to be friendly. So go and be friendly, plant that seed, and then wait, just wait. Keep being friendly, keep being faithful to that seed that you planted, and in, in due season, a harvest is going to come forth out of that. It happens in relationships, it happens with our money, it happens in every area of life. If you sow it, you will reap it and you will reap what you sow. You will reap more than you sow and you will reap later than you sow. 
And so for some of you in the room today, you don't need a financial miracle. There are some people that do. But for most of us, we don't need a financial miracle. We just need to sow some seed. Because there's a spiritual law, the law of sowing and reaping that God has established and, and, and it has to work or, or either God is a liar. And the Bible tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. So if he puts this principle in place, it is going to work. And it's the one area where God says, test me in this, test me. It's the only area where he invites us to test him. And he says, test me in this. And so I just want to make th this statement, then I'm going to move on. When it comes to finances... This is probably one of the most powerful statements that I can make. When you live in God's blessings, you don't have to rely on God's miracles. Amen. Well, you're more spiritual than the, than the first service because they didn't like that. When you live in God's blessings, you don't have to rely on God's miracles when it comes to your finances. But there are some situations in life that they just simply call for the miraculous. There's some things in life that you just need a miracle. There's no other way around it. Unless God shows up, God intervenes, unless his miraculous hand works in your life, it's not going to be a good outcome for you. You need a miracle. And without a miracle, the circumstance will not end in your favor. And so we need miracles. We need a God who is a God of miracles, and we need those miracles transpiring in our lives. John chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, we're, we're at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. He's just getting started. And we find him at a wedding. I'm going to read from John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The Greek word for miracle is someos. It means sign. And throughout the book of John, when he refers to the miracles of Jesus, John calls them signs. Because miracles are signs. Signs are never about themselves. They are about whatever they are pointing toward. I was a youth pastor in Tampa. Mandy and I took a group of students and chaperones out to Arizona to run some youth camps. 
And when the youth camp ended on Friday, we decided that we were going to drive from Prescott, Arizona, up through Flagstaff, and we were going to go to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. We had never seen the Grand Canyon before. Most of the people in our group, students and chaperones, they had never been to the Grand Canyon. And so we decided we were going to go and, and just explore and see what we could get into. And well, that would be bad if you get into the Grand Canyon, but we were just going to go check it out and see what was, see what was happening. And so we, um, we start our drive up and I'll never forget this drive. We have two, two vans that we rented to drive everybody from the airport to the camp. And now we're in those vans. We're heading up to see the Grand Canyon and we're driving down the interstate heading north. And I remember driving and I look over and, and in the, the median there in the grass median, it is so dry, it is so hot, there's just a tumbleweed that just burst, and it's just spontaneous combustion, just right there, it just, it just went up in flames. And I'm like, I'm not in Florida anymore. This, it really is, it's a different kind of heat. It's weird, it's weird, strange. And, and so we, we continue our drive, we get to Flagstaff, and I remember seeing this sign in Flagstaff, and it said, Grand Canyon National Park, 79 miles. So we're 79 miles from the Grand Canyon. In 79 miles, if we keep driving, we are going to see the south rim of the Grand Canyon. We are going to look over its splendor and its beauty. Now, we did. We kept driving. But imagine this. Imagine if we get to that sign in Flagstaff that says Grand Canyon National Park, 79 miles. And imagine if I just pulled the vans over and we all get out, we all get around the sign, we're all pointing to the sign that says Grand Canyon National Park, 79 miles. And then when we're all done pointing at this sign, I say, okay, guys, get in the van and we turn around and we head back to Phoenix to get ready to fly out. Do you know how disappointing that would be? That, that we settled for just the sign. And, and, and I need you to understand that miracles always point to something beyond themselves. The miracle is not the final destination of what God wants to do in and through your life. And whatever miracle that God wants to perform in your life will always bring glory to him. Miracles point to the God behind and beyond the miracles. And I can assure you that when Jesus changed the water to wine, that this was just a sign to something greater and beyond the sign. There was something more to it. And I want us to explore that. I want us to look at why this miracle had to happen. This is such an interesting first miracle. Out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, this one just seems so insignificant. I mean, think about it. He would eventually open blinded eyes. He, he would heal the sick. Jesus would raise the dead on numerous occasions. But for his first miracle, he turns water to wine? Out of all the miracles that Jesus performed, this one seems so simple. It seems so senseless. When you look at the grand scheme of things, this doesn't make sense. Why? Was it really necessary for the God of the universe to make wine? What's going on here? There was once this pastor who was, who was having a, a bad day, bad week, bad month. Just his career was, was tanking and he was just fed up with people, fed up with God. He just, he just didn't know what to do with his life. And so he left the office one, one evening and he stopped by the local liquor store and went inside and bought the cheapest bottle of wine that he could possibly find. He gets back in his car and he opens the wine. He starts driving and he, he doesn't care who's watching. He just starts drinking the wine. 
He goes through a red light and there's a cop sitting there that knows the pastor and he, he, he looks and he's like, what? Is that a wine bottle in his hand? So the cop pulls out, turns on his lights, pulls the pastor over. Cop gets out and comes around to the pastor, pa pastor's window and he says, pastor, what's going on with you? Are you drinking wine? And he said, no, no. He said, I poured all that out. This, I just put water in here. I'm just drinking water. He said, man, trust me with that. And he said, well, then you won't have a problem then if I, if I inspect that, will you? And he says, no, not at all. Be my guest. And he hands him the bottle of wine. The officer takes the wine and, and, and just takes a big swig of it. Just, and he spits it out. And he was like, preacher, this is wine. To which the preacher replied, praise the Lord. He did it again. <laughs> now listen to me. I need everybody in the room to relax, okay? I see the tension on your faces right now because there are many backgrounds in this room and some of you, you were raised in a very strict, conservative way like I was and the consumption of alcohol is very strict, uh, very strictly prohibited. But there's others in the room that you are more relaxed in your convictions on alcohol. And my efforts today, they are not to try and persuade you in either direction. But, but the one thing that we can all agree on, no matter which side of the coin you're on, we all agree that the Bible is very plain with how alcohol can lead to drunk and that that is sinful. And so we, we agree on that. I don't, I don't want to debate on whether or not the wine was fermented or not. I've heard that before. And that's grape juice, you know, so I don't want to argue that. Uh, I don't want to argue on whether or not it was diluted. That was a practice of the day that towards the end of a celebration, end of a feast or end of a wedding celebration, that you would dilute the wine. You'd add water to the wine where it still had some taste to it. But once people are drunk enough, they won't ever be able to tell the difference. And so I don't want to argue that. The one thing that I do know is that the master of the feast, the maitre d', he, he could tell. You see, he wasn't intoxicated. His, his position would not allow him to be intoxicated. He had to keep everything rolling. He had to make sure the event was being pulled off without a hitch. You know, and so he, he, he was the guy that was ordering around what the Bible calls servants, which were waiters. He was ordering around the waiters, making sure everybody's doing their job. One of the great parts of his job is that he got to be the taste tester. And so when the food came out, he got to taste the food to make sure that it's a good enough quality before it's presented to the wedding guests. And he also, he would be able to taste the wine. And that happened here in this story. He, taste, he tasted the wine and, and, and he calls the bridegroom over to him. He calls the groom over to him and he says, man, he said, almost always people use the, the best wine first and they save the cheap wine for later. He said, but man, you brought the best stuff out here at the end. Would you expect any less from Jesus? I mean, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it right, right? And, and, and so I could imagine the groom standing there going, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I, I have nothing to do with this. I mean, that was the first we heard of this guy in the story. We, we have no idea. And, and this thing seems, it still seems to me like it is such an insignificant miracle when there are real needs outside the walls of that wedding. There's people that are hurting out there, Jesus. There's people that, that, that need a true miracle in their life. And you're worried about changing water to wine? Why would you do something so small and insignificant like that? And what we have to realize, church, is that to God, one miracle is not easier or harder than the next miracle. To God, there is absolutely no degree of difficulty at all. God can change the molecular structure and the makeup of water and change it to wine just as easy as he can raise Lazarus from the dead after four days. 
There's no easy or hard with God. Genesis 1 and 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John, starting off this book of, of, of signs, the, you know, of the miracles of Jesus, starting this book off in John 1 and 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he's just piggybacking on Genesis 1 and 1 and saying, listen, God is big. God created everything. God is able to give us signs. He's able to give us miracles. And Jesus was part of that. He is part of the Godhead Trinity. And, and, and we have to understand that if we believe that God created the laws of nature, then we've got to believe that he is certainly not bound to those same laws. That if God created how everything works, he is not bound to how it works. It's like the sun. He, he programmed the sun to come up. Sunrise and sunset. But the, there was a moment where, where someone needed a miracle in, in order to secure the victory of battle. They prayed in the Old Testament and said, God, just let the sun stand still. And God was not bound to the laws of nature. The sun stood still. It stopped in the sky. That's amazing. It's a miracle. And it shows us that even though God created the laws of nature, he is not bound by those same laws that he created. Now, in biblical times, when a couple became engaged, the prospective groom, the bridegroom, the groom would tell his bride, I go and prepare a place for you. After they were engaged, he would say, I go and prepare a place for you. Those are the same words that Jesus used right before he was arrested and crucified. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. The groom would then spend several months to, to a year at his father's house building an addition onto the house, building a room or rooms onto the house. And Jesus would say, in my father's house, there are many mansions. He said, I'm going to prepare this place for you. You see, Jesus was setting it up. He was getting it ready because we, the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. There will be a wedding one day. And, and, and the bride of Christ, Jesus will receive us as his own. And, and, and Jesus was setting it all up with the comments that he was making. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. Unlike our traditions where the, the bride's family is responsible to pay for the wedding and reception. In that culture, the groom was responsible to pay for the, for the wedding and the reception. Well, some of the fathers in the room of daughters, don't you wish it was still that way today? Don't you, don't you wish that was our culture right now? I know I do. I got, I got a son and a daughter. I would much rather just, you know, get out of it without having to spend that money, you know. Cana. Cana was very insignificant also. Cana was not a big city. And if I'm going to perform a miracle, if there's something of that magnitude that I'm going to do, don't you know that I would have went to Jerusalem? I would have went to the city, not some little podunk town somewhere. If I'm going to do something that great, I I'm going to go to Jerusalem where later he would be crucified and where the crowds would yell, crucify him, crucify. I'm going there at the beginning of my ministry and I'm going to show off my wonder and my powers right there in that setting. I'm going to let everybody see but in Cana, this small town, everybody knew everybody. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
Everybody knew everybody. And if this wedding celebration runs out of wine, everybody is going to know word travels fast in a small town. I said, word travels fast in a small town, Newberry. Word travels fast in a small town, Newberry. All you got to do is go on the Citizens of Newberry Forum. Word travels fast. And to make this even more insignificant, we don't even know the couple's names. The Bible never tells us what their names are. They are so insignificant in this story. Nameless, insignificant people in a small, insignificant town. But they invited the right person to the wedding. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Man, make sure, here's some good wedding advice for some of the couples that are engaged or maybe you're going to get married one day soon. Always invite the right people to the wedding. I was working for a man. It was before I was in ministry when we got married. And I could care less if this man was, was at my wedding. As a matter of fact, I didn't even really care for the guy too much, to be honest. But he was a man of means. So I made sure that he got a wedding invitation. Because you got to invite the right people to the wedding. You know what I mean? That's some good wedding advice right there. See, you're not even in premarital counseling with me right now, or most of you aren't. And I'm giving you good premarital advice right there. Invite the right person to the wedding. Understand this. There are no small miracles with God, and there are no small people with God. And so whatever it is in your life, whatever is going on, you need to understand to God, you are a priority. You are. You you, you got to be convinced of this. You are a priority of God. God cares about the big problems and God cares about the small problems of your life. When Caleb and Kendall were about five years old, Mandy took them through the drive-thru and they, they got a, each got a Happy Meal. And um, well, let's, who were we kidding? I was a youth pastor back then and they got a happy meal and they had to split it between the two of them. So now, they each got a happy meal and, and there was a little toy in the, in the happy meal. And Caleb would play with that little toy. He, he liked that toy. He always had it in his hands and stuff. And, and um, Caleb is real possessive over, over the stuff that he has. And he's still that way. I mean, he just, he doesn't like anything to get lost. Caleb likes his stuff, likes to keep it clean, neat, you know, doesn't want anything lost. It was one time there was a kid that had some of Caleb's Star Wars figurines and stuff and, and uh, action figures, sorry. And um, he lost one of the little, I think it was Yoda's lightsaber. And I thought Caleb was going to kill this kid for losing his eye. I mean, he still has a hard time forgiving that kid to this day. But So Caleb lost the, the, little, the little Happy Meal toy. He lost it. And I'm telling you, Caleb, he was distraught over this. He was crying and, and just, I mean, a little five-year-old broke his heart over it. And Mandy and Caleb and Kendall, they searched the house through and through. They were looking under the beds. They were looking under the cushions on the couch, under the couch. Um, they, they were looking in the freezer. Anywhere possibly that this little, little toy could be, this little Happy Meal toy, anywhere it could possibly be, they were looking. And, and there was frustration that was building because Caleb wasn't letting it go. This thing meant something to him. And, and so finally, Kendall looks at her mother and Kendall says, Mommy, why don't we just ask God to help us find it? Man, don't I, I just want to have that childlike faith. Why don't we just ask God to help us find it? Well, Mandy called me to tell me 
everything that had transpired. She was excited about it. She starts telling me, and I, I was busy, and, and she starts telling me. And, and, and so we decided we were going to pray for God to help us find it. And I'm sitting there on the phone, and I'm going, you know, I think God's got some bigger fish to fry right now. You know, there's starving children in Africa. I think a tsunami had just happened. And, and, and so, you know, there's war in the Middle East. There, you know, and, and what, what's, what, God doesn't need to worry about this. God's too big to care about this problem. Would you know the three of them join hands and they begin praying? And they found that little Happy Meal toy? You're probably thinking, man, that's a coincidence. If you're thinking that, then maybe you've lost your sense of amazement and your wonder and your heavenly father. Because if, if he knows every star in the sky, if he knows every hair on your head, and for some of you, you've made it a lot easier for him, but, but still, <laughs> still, if he knows every hair on your head, don't you think he's concerned about your little Happy Meal toy too? Jesus looks over and he sees these six stone water jars and, and these pots, they were used for ceremonial washings that were requir required by Jewish law. Basically what you would do is you'd go by these pots of water and, and, and you would try and wash the world off of you before you could go into the presence of God. It's a wonderful thought, strictly symbolic, but you wash the world off of you symbolically before you go into the presence of God. Jesus looks over and all six of the stone water jars, they're, they're empty. There's no water in any of them. They cannot cleanse anything. Moses was the one who gave them the law. And it's interesting to me that the first miracle that Moses was a part of was changing the water of the Nile River to blood. It was one of the 10 plagues of, of Egypt. And it represented judgment, that God was bringing judgment upon Egypt. And now we find Jesus changing water to wine. Wine being a symbol of grace and celebration. That no longer are we bound by judgment. Now we get to be free in Christ Jesus and we get to celebrate the grace and the mercy that he's poured into our lives. And at a wedding, the groom was responsible for the wine. And so Mary brings the problem to the attention of Jesus. Now this is crucial. I want you to, to, to hear this. She says, they ran out of wine. To which Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? He actually said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus was just getting started with his ministry. He's got some work to do before he can prepare for his wedding celebration with his church. Us, the body of Christ. He knows there's some work that has to be done. But trust me, he is our bridegroom. Ephesians 5 and 25 says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Isaiah 54 and 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Revelation 21 and 2 says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 19 and 7, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb, capitalized lamb, that's Jesus Christ, and his bride has prepared uh, herself. You see, church, it is no coincidence that his first miracle is at a wedding because he is foretelling of what his ministry will be about. It's preparing the bride for that great wedding day that we will have when the bride of Christ joins her groom. I love how Mary converses with her son. We can learn a lot from it. Because she doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She just brings the need to his attention. Read it. She never once says, now you, you go get some water and you turn it into wine, young man. I remember, I saw you out there playing when, when, when you were just a child. I watched you. I watched you take that dirt in your hands and when everybody else had their own little puppy and me and Joseph wouldn't let you have one, you formed your own little dog out of the dirt you breathed into the nostrils of that dog and there you had a puppy, you know. I watched that. I watched you when you were eight years old and, and, and there was a puddle and, and you didn't walk around the puddle. You walked right across the puddle, young man. I, now you go get that water right there and you turn it into wine before I beat you right here in front of all your friends. None of that happened at all. <laughs> It'd be a very interesting read, but none of it happened. All she does, all she does is she presents the need. That's it. Son, they ran out of wine. Woman, my time has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? Hey, I'm not ready for a wedding. It's, it's the groom's responsibility. It's not my response. This is not my wedding. Mary just says, looks at the servants, looks at the waiters and says, do whatever he tells you to do. She walks off. Jesus now is standing there with this great opportunity because we're at a wedding and now he has the chance to lay the foundation for his ministry with his first miracle. No matter how big, how small it is, I'm preparing the bride. I'm going to do something at this wedding celebration that lets you know I'm concerned with even the small things of your life. Do whatever he tells you. Church, obedience breeds the supernatural in your life. You can, you can give all of your money to the church. You can give all your money to the poor. Man, that is a great sacrifice. Man, you're, you're awesome. I don't care who you are. You do that, you're awesome. I haven't done that, but you're awesome if you can do that. If you can give it all away, you're a great person. What sacrifice that is. You can show up every week and serve the people of Destiny Community Church. You can be the greatest volunteer that DCC has to offer. That is wonderful sacrifice. But the Old Testament tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Do whatever he tells you to do. And obedience will always breed the miraculous in your life. Always. Take up your mat and walk. You better obey. You better get up, roll that mat up, and you better walk. Take up your mat and walk, and there's a miracle 
but, but Lord, he's been dead four days. Remove the stone. Okay, let's roll the stone away. A miraculous takes place. Hey, Naaman, go and wash yourself in the river, in the muddy Jordan River. And when he does it, a miracle happens. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, have them all sit down in groups. Have them sit down in groups and, uh, and then we will feed them. And he takes the bread and he takes the fish and he lifts them up to heaven and, and he prays over them. He blesses it and then he puts it in the hands of the disciples and he says, you feed them. And they obey and the miracle transpires in their hands as they keep passing out. And it's an endless bottom to, 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 to the bread, an endless bottom to the fish. They just keep feeding everybody. Why? Because somebody obeys. When you obey, the supernatural is released in your life. And either you're going to obey God or you better find somebody that has and you better connect with them. Listen, I know... I know people who have healing ministries and they're weird. Man, I'm just being honest. They're str they freak me out. I've seen some things that, that I wouldn't give you two cents for. But I've seen some other things. Wow. The reason why there's healing ministries that take place is because those people often are willing to do something we're not willing to do. They pray some crazy bold prayers. And when people get connected with that, crazy things happen. Many times the reason it happens is because they stand boldly with their prayers before God because they've already knelt humbly before his throne. As weird as it is, miraculous things happen. I don't know about you, but I don't want to rely on somebody else. I want to do what he tells me to do. And there are some crazy prayers that are being prayed in this congregation that you know you need a miracle. And God wants to give you that miracle. I believe in you, Lord. I believe in you. You're the God of miracles. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.